Sometimes when you have a children's sermon, boy, that's the one I really tuned into. That's the one I understood. It was sort of straightforward and simple. And, and if even a child can understand, well, sometimes that's what we need. This gospel that we claim, that we believe, that we hope is, is going to be transforming us is really quite simple. It's quite basic. It's quite foundational. And uh, we sometimes get lost in the complexity and thinking uh, sometimes, you know, we're intimidated because I don't know all that. Well, what do you need to know? And the question that we're asking in this series that started last week is, how do we dig down deep? How do we plant our roots deep in this faith? How do we get closely connected with God? What difference will that make? How do I cooperate in this program? How do I respond to this invitation? How do I become the person I was designed to be? Now, that's, that's a really serious question. And, and because we're the church, we, we're willing to grapple with those kinds of serious... There probably is no more basic question than that. How do I become the person who begins to express exactly what God designed me for? How do I do that? We're going to be turning to Psalm chapter 1 in just a moment and looking at that psalm as we talk about being rooted in God's Word. And that's a place we've chosen to begin as we think about how we grow up in Christ, how we become the spiritual person that we're designed to be, that we want to be, that we long to be. Before I tell you about, before we read Psalm chapter 1, let me say something about the Psalms in general. Because there's something so valuable and so simple and so direct about the way the song, psalms are written. And I don't want us to admit this. There, there's, there's something powerful about the poetry in the psalms. By the way, somebody told me the heat wasn't on this morning, but I'm beginning to feel it up here. Is it just me? Is it just me feeling that? Okay, it must be the, it must be the pressure that I'm under. I'm still the new guy, you know. I'm still sort of auditioning for the part here. You know, somebody once asked me if I get nervous when I speak, because I've done you know this for a long time, and I say, absolutely not. I never, ever get nervous. I get excited, which is just, it's the same feeling. I've just renamed it. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not up there, because it's hotter as you go up. So here we are. Down on the floor. The Psalms, the power of poetry, the way in which David and others write to us as we read the Psalms. And the first thing you notice is there is a radical authenticity in the Psalms. In fact, one 20th century psychologist called David the first self-aware man, the first self-conscious, self-reflective human being. As he writes in these psalms, he's so incredibly transparent. He's thinking about what he's thinking. He's expressing what he's feeling. And the amazing thing is, we have this in the Word of God, so you and I have permission to express ourselves in that kind of way. I mean, the good, the bad, and the ugly show up in the psalms. Sometimes you read it and you're inspired. Sometimes you read it and you wince because it's so honest. It's so real. How can he dare speak like that? And, and of course, knowing that he's speaking directly to God. I guess God can handle that. 
In fact, more than handle it, God wants to know where we are. There's a radical authenticity in this Psalms. There's also an incredible beauty in this Psalms. The beauty of the language, the beauty of the sound of the language. It's sort of appealing to the ears. And it's meant to be sung. It's meant to be recited. It's meant to be sort of repeated over and over until it sinks down deeply into us. And then the beauty of the meaning, again expressed often in very simple terms. There's suddenly a profound insight that just grips you. And more than just your mind, sort of grips your soul. Your whole heart is captivated as you read the Psalms because you realize somebody else is bearing his heart. Just putting it out there. We're invited to do that. Part of our growth in Christ, part of our growth as Christians, part of our understanding of who God is, is unlearning some things that have caused us to shield ourselves and wall ourselves up from anything this deep, this real, this honest, and sometimes this painful. David put it, put, puts it out there. And somehow in the putting it out there, even though it's kind of broken and bloody at times, because David's life is not simple, just like yours is not that simple, not that easy. There's something beautiful about it. And then beneath it all, there's deep conviction that comes through. The Psalms are Psalms of worship. And as we connect with God, as we encounter God, as David encounters God and, and shares that experience with us, there are deep convictions that form. And those convictions pull us toward commitment. You can't read the Psalms and simply say, well, that was interesting, or that was lovely, or that was provocative. I wondered what happened to him to make him feel that deeply and express it so candidly. It's more than that. There are convictions that are being shared with us, and because it is literally God's Word in the words of David, you and I are, are challenged with this conviction and called to make a commitment about it. So let's turn to uh, Psalm chapter 1 and take a look at what's there. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What's the first word in the first psalm? You're allowed to interact here. It's okay. You're allowed to talk back. Blessed. It's kind of interesting that we start that way. There's so many different ways we could start or imagine that, you know, this book would start. We could start with judgment. Um, we could start with some grand theological proposition. There's a lot of ways we could start, and maybe you're surprised to know we do start right here because this is what we're longing for more than anything else, a blessing, a deep, settled kind of happiness and happiness doesn't quite capture it because we know happiness is based on happenings it's based on circumstances and those are always changing this is some kind of deep fulfillment this is some kind of 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 uh of 
being overcome with a, a deep and powerful satisfaction. And uh, it's a gift that comes to us. And it's a surprise when it does come because it has nothing to do with whether or not we feel worthy or in fact have performed to the degree that we are now deserving of this. It's something that comes to us directly from the hand of God and directly from the heart of God. Obviously, this is something God longs to give to us, His creation. This blessing. You're saying, well, that sounds a little selfish to start off there by, by, by suggesting that's what I want. Well, God designed you this way. You are longing for a blessing. You are longing to be fulfilled. And the amazing thing is that your deepest longings are met exactly by God's desire to bless you. The way He created you is with needs that He intends to fulfill. We often think, well, if I'm going to give in to God, that's an ugly statement, by the way. I mean, it sounds like something you're going to do reluctantly, not something you're excited about. If I'm going to let God have His way in my life, if I'm going to give over control to God, and you can just hear the resistance, can't you? And maybe feel it inside your own heart. If I'm going to do this, if I'm going to be all out, if I'm going to be completely committed to Him, I know for sure that misery awaits me. I know for sure that it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. I'm going to be unhappy all of my life. That's propaganda from the other side trying to convince us from the very beginning that we don't want any part of this, but if we have to do it, maybe we can rise to the occasion and reluctantly give some portion of ourselves. All of this, of course, is calculated to keep us kind of stuck where we are. But God intends blessing for you. That's how it begins. Those are His first words. If you go all the way back to the very beginning, to Genesis, God made this world, and then at the very end comes to the crown of His creation, humankind, and says, oh, wow. So good. Very good. Haven't I done something wonderful here? Look at what is here. And the whole point of creation isn't to satisfy God because He's lonely or because He has some need. He's not lonely. He has no needs. There's an eternal love affair going on in the Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. So God is complete in Himself. But because He is love, He loves to extend it. He loves to express it. He has to manifest it. It's the nature of love to do that. And so blessing coming out of God is what we should expect once we get to know Him. That's who He is. And yes, there are hard times, and yes, there are tough times, and yes, there are things that are difficult to go through, but all of that must be worth it because God's heart intends to bless. Now, we can miss it, and the psalm is very clear from the very beginning. We can miss all of this very quickly. We can miss the blessing. There are things that sabotage the blessing. Well, what are they? Notice there are a series of sort of changes in posture here. He's talking about walking in the council of the wicked. The man who is blessed, the woman who is blessed, doesn't do that. And standing in the way of sinners. And sitting in the seat of mockers or scoffers, as the King James Version puts it. 
Now think about that for a moment. Think about those different postures and think about how they correspond to ways you live. Ways you think, ways you behave, and places you end up staying. When you're walking, you're passing by. You're going through something. Um, maybe you're taking notice. Maybe you're curious. Maybe you're uh, considering as you're walking by. And most of us would say, there's no harm done in that. I can walk by this. I can walk by this place. I can pay some attention for some brief time. I'm not going to stay here. It won't have any influence on me. I can consider the other ways, the other alternatives, those that would be a different way than God's way for us. And so we're walking. But then at some point, you find yourself standing. You stop and you stand. Scripture often uses, by the way, this sequence of these three, sometimes in a different version, which I'll talk about in a moment. So we're, we're walking through, we're walking past, and uh, we almost can't help it because the world is out there and our journey takes us right through there. But we start considering what we see and we start uh, wondering about what it would be like to uh, be part of that, to join into that, whatever that is, something that's very appealing at a certain level. And then we stop, we stand, and now we're absorbing. We're not just considering, we're absorbing it. We're taking time. We're stopping as if we might stay. We're not staying. We rationalize to ourselves we're not staying, but we have stopped. And now we're um, adapting and adopting a little bit of what we, what's going on around us. But nothing we can't get out of. We're, we're sure of that. We can, we, can, we can keep moving past this. But then all of a sudden we find ourselves sitting and staying, and uh, belonging to this other way of living, and becoming what we were watching, and becoming like the people we are now identifying with. Now, we know that Jesus himself, centuries after this was written, talks about his desire to send us out into the world and yet make sure that we're not of the world. So we may pass through, but we're never to become, to conform, and to sell our souls in the process. Well, the, the walking, the standing, and the sitting, now I'm here. Now I'm at the edge of, of getting lost because I've become something different. And I may wake up one day saying, how did I get here? How did this thing that I was just considering or perhaps for a moment participating in, now become my new identity. Now, I'm speaking very generally right now because I certainly wouldn't want to hurt anybody's feeling by getting specific right now. The Bible in so many places, of course, does that, becomes very specific about what these problems are. But I'm speaking generally right now because I want to throw the net wide because that's what Psalm chapter 1 is doing. It's saying, in general, there are two ways. There's God's way, and there are all other ways. Now, we don't like that binary choice. We'd uh, like multiple choice. Uh, we'd prefer to uh, you know, improvise in something that seems like some kind of compromise with somewhat, you know, a, a part of God, and then when that gets too tough or I don't understand it, you know, can I just sort of piece together something else and create some sort of hybrid? And already in Psalm chapter 1, it's very clear and God cares about us so much, He won't let us concoct our own brew, our own poisonous, toxic brew. 
Because here's what happened. You'll walk through and consider. You'll stop and you'll stand and you'll begin to absorb and then you'll sit and you'll become. And I wonder where you are. I wonder where you are walking. I wonder what you're standing and staring at. I wonder where you might have decided to settle down and settle in. If you want to become God's man, God's woman, God's person, if you want to take Him seriously, if you want to become like Him, then this is a very severe warning for us. You probably haven't heard about the old Eskimo living up north in the wild. And if that Eskimo wants to take out the wolf that has been marauding in the area, the old Eskimo had a particular um, strategy. You can't go and hunt the wolf because the wolf is nocturnal. Okay, he'll see you, he'll smell you before you ever show up. The wolf is too fast, too quick, too clever to ever be caught in any kind of you know, face-to-face confrontation. So the old Eskimo knows that. And what he does is he takes a hunting knife with a big long blade. And he goes out into the middle of the territory known to be inhabited by the wolf. And uh, he puts a coat of blood on the blade. Rabbit's blood, of course, is the preferred quality of blood. And immediately, out just before it nightfall, that blood freezes and sticks to the blade. Then he puts another coat on, and maybe three, four, or five coats, until it's a thick kind of uh, blob of blood on the blade. And he'll stick it into the snow, blade up, with the handle buried under the snowdrift. And he'll walk away. He'll walk away. Leaving only a stub of blood sticking above the snow. And later on that night, the wolf catches the scent of the blood. Is that rabbit's blood? It kind of smells good. But the wolf is not dumb. The wolf is not going to walk right into a trap and forfeit his life. So he's going to be very, very careful. And he wanders around. He walks around and walks through the area around the perimeter. I think that's rabbit's blood. I think it might be available. I think it might be above ground. I think it might be immobilized for some reason. I think my prey might be set up for me, but I've got to make sure that there's no other threat, that there's nothing harmful around. And so he'll do the perimeter several times, and he's constantly sniffing the air and he's looking around and he's listening very carefully, and, and nothing. There, there's no problem. There's, there's no threat. And so he'll get a little bit closer, and now he can see it. And even in the moonlight, even in the darkness, he kind of senses this is something that would be really, really good. Haven't had this quite like this, so accessible like this. And so he'll come and he'll stand right next to the blade, but he's still sniffing the air. He's still got his ear cocked. He's watching to see if there's anyone else around, especially his most deadly enemy. And nothing, nobody. The night is still. There's, there's nothing to cause him to, to worry. But he's still not sure, so he takes, he's so close, he can't help himself. He takes a little lick. And sure enough, it, it, it's the real thing. It's, it's, it's rabbit blood. But he pulls back for a moment thinking, this is too good to be true. What is this doing here? This shouldn't be here. I should be very careful. 
not sure exactly what wolves think, but something like that, because they're very clever creatures, you know. And so he comes back to it, and he thinks for a moment about walking away. I'm not sure I should trust this moment or even my own judgment, but, but here I am, and it's so close, and, and now the attraction locks him in. And so he comes back, and he begins to lick the blood. Wow, it's so good. And his warmth on his tongue melts the blood, and he begins to take it in, and pretty soon, you know what happens. He's in a feeding frenzy now. He's licking harder and harder and harder, and he doesn't even notice. And the temperature of the blood that he's drinking is a bit warmer. And that goes on for a while. And there's no leaving it now. There's no escaping it. And in the morning, the old Eskimo comes out and collects the corpse lying next to the blade. I always become self-conscious about my tongue when I tell that story. You're not like the wolf, are you? You're smarter than that, right? You're much more wary. You don't find yourself caught, captured by something you never intended to get into. How did I get here? How did I get so close? How did I get so involved? God cares so much about you that He's not afraid to speak harshly about the dangers that are out there and compel you, even using commanding language, to say, don't play that game of brinksmanship. I'm speaking to myself right now because I know how many times I've walked along the edge of the cliff. And I'm skillful enough, I will not go over the edge. But of course, there's that unexpected gust of wind that when you put yourself that close, you can be blown right over the edge and not even know it until it's too late and you're falling. Sometimes we read the Scripture and we think, well, the language is harsh. Couldn't God be nicer? People who don't care about you can afford to be nice and indifferent because that's basically what nice means is, you know, whatever you decide is fine with me. Well, it's not true of God. He doesn't say that whatever you decide with me is fine with me. I had something in mind for you. Something wonderful, something beautiful, something transformational. I designed you with incredible potential. Please, I beg you, I command you, I allure you. All of these images are used in Scripture as God comes after us in the strongest possible, with the strongest possible language, reminding us what we're in danger of and what we could be missing. Okay, let's flip it now because we can go positive with this. Be wary of walking, standing, sitting. By the way, in, in Matthew, you read the story of the calling of Matthew and that sequence is reversed. When Jesus finds Matthew, he finds him sitting down. He's in the seat of the tax collector. He's in a very, very bad place. You don't want to be in that place, but that's where he is. That's his vocation. His vocation is robbing people. His, his vocation is compliance and complicity with the Roman Empire. Um, his vocation puts him at odds with his own people. 
Matthew was living completely for himself. He's sitting there. And when you sit there long enough, you get stuck. And Jesus comes by. And he calls him by name. And Matthew stands up. Well, once you stand up, you, you might move. At least you're now looking at and responding to. And then when he calls him by name, Matthew leaves that place, that vocation which is not God's call on his life, to follow him into a new vocation. That track can be reversed. If you've been walking in places that are not going to be helpful or healthy for you, if you stood there for a while and considered it, and finally, without even meaning to, you're sitting in the middle of it. That can be reversed. In fact, Psalm 1 is written not just to warn us, but to tell us God can provide the power of reversal for you. That's part of His mercy as well. It's greater than you know. You know, we have the gospel here already in the Psalms. It's Old Testament, but we have the gospel here. It will take the, the New Testament, awaiting the New Testament to see what Jesus is going to do to fulfill all of this. But there is a reversal possible. There is salvation possible. There's not a sort of um, inevitable destruction that takes place that can't be reversed. God is constantly rescuing people at the last moment when it seems like it's too late, when they've fallen into despair. So what do we do? Go to the source of the blessing. The source of the blessing, as it tells us here, is the law of God or the Word of God. Now, it's, it's law. Again, that language sounds so dogmatic. It sounds so definite. You know, law sounds like legalistic. You know, sounds like judgment. The law is simply a definition of reality. I mean, again, God is not pulling any punches because He cares so much about us. He says, this is the way it is because this is how I've created the world and this is how life works and how it doesn't work. So it's definition of reality. And yes, it is also then by definition a warning because if you're not aligned with reality, you're off course. And you're less than fully human when you're off course. In fact, you get dehumanized when you get off course. And you lose the human dignity that God intends for you and for me. But then there is always invitation. The law is inviting us to experience this blessing by listening again to the one who knows us best, who loves us most, and who is incredibly merciful. He understands that we're likely to go off course. And He's constantly calling us back. And the fact that He wouldn't give up on us, wouldn't give up on you and me, is again a, a sign of His grace, of His amazing grace. And He says that we should do the following. We should delight in the law. You and I have a choice to make about where we put our priorities. Pour yourself into God's communication. Pour yourself into listening carefully to and taking in all that God is saying to you. It's listening to God. It's listening to God with an open heart. Now that's hard to do because I tend to listen selectively and critically like we all do. I have my defenses up. Um, we'll see what God says, and if I like it, good, I'll sign off on it. This is a kind of pre-commitment. A pre-commitment to someone you've decided to trust. You've got to trust somebody. 
Well, I trust lots of people. No, but you only trust one person. Absolutely. Somebody's got to be at the core. There's got to be a voice you listen to above all other voices. Is it going to be God's voice? Are you going to delight in the listening of His voice? Are you going to take delight in that? Pre-commitment. I don't know if you have any friends that you trust enough to say, if they came to you and said, I've got a favor to ask of you, would you do it? What's your answer to that, by the way? Tell me what it is. I want to know what it is before I let you know whether I want to, I want to go there or not. And your friend says, oh no, I just want you to commit without knowing what it is. Think about the people sitting around you. You're good friends. And they ask you for that kind of favor and they put that kind of condition on it. Are you ready to, uh, to sign off on that without knowing what it is they're asking? How much do you trust them, their character? How much do you think they love you? that they wouldn't ask you to do anything that would be harmful for you or less than beneficial for you. That's God. And He says, pre-commit. I'm asking you to go somewhere, and we're saying, yeah, but I want to know all the details. I want to know all the terms. I want to know how it works. I want to know every experience I'm going to have along the way. And God says, I love you too much to tell you all that. I'm not going to tell you everything about what it's going to be like because you couldn't handle it and you wouldn't go. You're going to trust me. All right. So you delight yourself. You make a decision to delight. You know, you can make a decision to delight. You can, you can make a decision about where your focus is going to be, and you're going to listen. And because it's God, and because He cares enormously about you, and because He created you for a beautiful purpose, you're going to listen because you can't stand the thought of missing anything He wants to tell you. Unless the television is on and you miss it. There's so many other voices. You have to be very, very intentional about this. And then you have to meditate, which is a kind of discipline. So you decide to delight, and then you discipline yourself to stay with it. You don't get it all at once. You don't understand it completely the first time through or the second time through. This is a learning process, a growing process for your whole life. Are you invested in this? Are you willing to do this? And then thirdly, There's a kind of devotion that happens. You're planted now. You see how this resembles sort of the negative part we just looked at? Now you're sitting down like a tree. You're planted here. You're staying here. And where are you staying? You're staying by the river. You're staying by the streams. You're staying by the living water. And of course, you can't help but think of the echoes from the New Testament. Jesus, who is the living Word of God, Jesus who provides living water. That's where you decide to stay. So you are planted there. And nothing's going to throw you off course. You make that commitment and it's solid. You say, well, do I have to do this? No. You don't have to do anything. You can walk somewhere else. You can stand and stare at something else. You can sit down in a place that ultimately will be degrading for you, that will limit you and compromise you and destroy your integrity. You, you, can, you can go there if you want to, or you can plant yourself by God's grace right next to the streams, the living water. We're reminded again, warnings come up frequently. Yes, it's possible to abandon the blessing 
and again, go off in your own direction. And what happens to the wicked when they go in that direction? And it's not that God is arbitrarily assigning someone to that end. He's saying, if you live this way, you will end up there. This will be the consequence. I'm letting you know. But if you're rooted in my word, and my word is a reflection of my heart, so you're listening to me, and then you're living this, you will end up in a totally different place. Now, you get to make the choice. You get to choose the blessing. I was in uh, Cambodia last summer. My wife and I were part of a mission trip in the summer of 2010 to Cambodia. And uh, maybe in some ways, because of the history of Cambodia and how it's you know paralleled my, my lifetime, Cambodia, the Vietnam War, Cambodia, the killing fields, Cambodia, a very, very, very poor country. Just now kind of rising out of the, of the ashes of that experience. And we're there in Cambodia, and I'm with my friend Shamron Fall, who's a Cambodian pastor who survived the killing fields, living now in the U.S., pastoring here. But he goes back now every year a couple of times, and he's planted about 50 churches in Cambodia. So we would we went back with him, and we, in a two-week period, visited a number of these, almost three-week period, a number of these churches. And there was teaching and training and baptism, and what an amazing experience. And there are so many individuals I think of now with uh, such warmth in my heart because of that experience in Cambodia. One of them is a young man who wants to be um, used by God. He's lost an arm and part of a leg from those days. Middle-aged man now. He has a wife and a little child. In order to be at our meeting, they had to travel something like 10 hours walking to get to this place. Now, I've got two good legs, and 10 hours of walking is a long ways. He doesn't, and he's got a child with him, and they still walked the 10 hours to be with us, to share in the experience with us. And uh, if I walked 10 hours to get to this place, I would be worn out, I would be exhausted, and uh, I probably would want to lay down and take a nap. He shows up and he's filled with joy. He has what I'm calling this blessed assurance that God is, in fact, watching over him and watching over all of us and taking care of him and his family. And from his background, for him to believe that, it was kind of stunning to meet him. It's like you live in a different, I was going to say different universe, but I'm in that same universe. God is giving his word to me, all of his promises to me, the same promises this man has somehow taken in, even though his circumstances seem to contradict all of that. He is trusting God no matter what comes. He's lost an arm. He's lost part of a leg. In a picture with me, they wanted to take a picture with me. He's got his arm around his wife. I'm sorry, he's got his arm around his daughter. His other arm isn't there. And so his wife has to put her arm around him. And I'm thinking, okay, she's part of the answer to his prayer. She's also meeting his needs, even as he is taking good care of her. But he's only got one arm. I mean, in the worst of circumstances, we cry out and say, God, this is impossible. You said that you would provide, but I don't know. I can't even imagine how you're going to do it. 
I watched him, I watched his family, I watched his incredible spirit, this, this undefeated man who had been through all these horrible experiences. And I'm thinking, this man gets it better than I do. He's planted by the stream. He's taking in the Word. And he's got to walk 10 miles, whatever it takes, to hear more from the Word. So he can be blessed at a deeper level. And I'm thinking all of the casual ways I disregard the Word when it's right in front of me. All the opportunities I have, I disregard it. It's there. Yeah, I read it a while ago. And what I read, I take in to the degree I'm willing to take it in. And Psalm 1 begins with such an absolute challenge to us. Because here's the blessing. And here's where it's not. You say, well, I'm not wandering into any terrible places and doing scandalous things. But if you're not constantly nurtured by God's Word, by God's law, by God's commands, by God's heart as expressed in His communication to you, you will wander. You are prone to wander. You are prone to go off course. There's something in you, if left by yourself, that will invariably go off course. I had to go to Cambodia to remind myself again, in the worst of circumstances, in the most difficult of backgrounds, that God's Word is, makes the decisive difference in our lives. And whoever you are, wherever you are, prone to wander as you are, this is the commitment. This is the intention that God is reminding all of us this morning as we open up Psalm chapter 1 and think about this series of, of rooting our lives. You know, there's a lot of wandering, a lot of drifting these days, a lot of blown back and forth these days. Psalm 1 talks about being blown like the chaff. You know, chaff is rootless. There's the chaff and then there's the grain, you know, whether it's corn or wheat, and you throw it up in the air, and the wheat kernels, the seeds come down because they're heavy. But the chaff, which is rootless and weightless and useless, is blown away. Is there weight in your life? Is there substance to you? Is there integrity? Are you grounded? Grounded in God's Word? Grounded, therefore, in the relationship that you claim you have with God in Christ? Are you grounded? There's a decision you must make. There's a discipline you must practice. There's a devotion that ultimately will be defining for you. And then we find out that this God who is calling us, this God who is commanding us, is also a God who comes alongside of us and says, I know you've wandered off. I know parts of you become very superficial and disconnected from me. That's why I came looking for you. That's why I sent my son, Jesus, to find you. Because all the ways that you've failed and you haven't paid attention and you've been distracted and you've wandered off, I sent him to find you and to bring you back. And not just to speak words, but to be in his life, in himself, the living word of God. And that's the communication that's most powerful. And that's our blessing is to know God by knowing Christ. And that's where this all begins. And Psalm chapter 1 is a kind of preview of all that that's coming. Would you pray with me?
So Lord, we, we, we crave this blessing. And we know it's in our relationship with you. And so it's by listening to you. Listening hard, listening well, listening faithfully so that we, we do what we hear. And we live this and we practice this. And we don't go wandering off. And when we do, we come back. And we don't stand and stare because we're doing that to the jeopardy of our own soul. And we don't sit down and, and realign ourselves and give our allegiance to someone else who doesn't have our best in mind. And if we've gone there, and even if we're sitting there, and it's become kind of a mess we're sitting in, let us hear your voice again and stand up and follow you, Jesus, and follow you. We know that you are watching over us, that you care for us enormously. We will listen to you. And we'll do what you tell us. Because we know your heart. We know how much you love us. We know what's good for us. Remind us again and plant us, God. Plant us now in this blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.